Welcome to the Public Morality. Insecurity, a three-part documentary series of stories about women struggling for what they need in the post-pandemic world after their lives have been upended by social services, a living wage, or decent mental health care. It is produced by Intercept and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and is hosted by our guest, veteran journalist Ray Suarez. Ray Suarez, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thank you. Great to be with you, Byron. You know, it's commonly held that journalists should not make themselves the story. Uh, that said, journalistic ethics notwithstanding, I I'd like to begin with you and your personal interest that drew you into hosting the, the Insecurity series. Well, you're right. I mean, it is a long-held journalistic value that um, the word I, the personal pronoun, is uh, is like jalapeno peppers. You you use them sparingly and carefully. Um, and in, as as an old school journal, I I definitely use the word I very little in the course of my career, and was careful about it, but. I went through a series of experiences and somebody who knew about it was planning a project on downward mobility and coping during the pandemic and approached me in part because they thought I would do a good job in part because they knew I had a long-term interest in issues of, uh, of wealth and poverty of American inequality. So those, you know, the sort of journalistic basics were there, but they also knew that I had um, had career setbacks and had not been able to find new work and was experiencing this part of American life in a, in a new way. Instead of reporting about it, I was, uh, I was living it. So they approached me, asked me if I would be interested in doing a project like this. And I said, yeah, I mean, these are stories that are undertold. And often when they are told, they're told almost in a tone of poverty porn, uh, like this um, patronizing, uh, precious kind of way where very well-paid, very well-off people uh, parachute into the lives of people who've had hard times and, uh, and do an unsatisfying job. And they were hoping for something better. And I think we've done something better. Uh, the, the series Going for Broke has now had two seasons, uh, one in partnership with the magazine, The Nation. And that's won several national journalistic awards. And now in a second season with the good people at Wisconsin Public Radio who produce to the best of our knowledge, which is a very successful radio program and podcast series. So a lot of people are hearing these programs, which is great. Uh, I got some work, which was great. And uh, I think we did a very, a very important thing by, by giving voice to these stories. Well, uh, my, my bias notwithstanding, I think you did, you, you know, I don't think, I know you did an excellent job and, and uh, that work is, the work in this insecurity is to, is to be highly committed and I hope it's widely viewed. Um, one last thing on, on this, in this area, uh, 
were you conscious that when making that decision, that type of honesty, were you, as you, in your words, use the word I to sort of as the lead, really, that um, that sort of credibility sort of um, lent itself to say if if this type of insecurity on some level could befall Ray Suarez, with few exceptions, many of us who may not be currently in the situation are really just one hardship away from being part of this story. Was that something you were conscious of? Absolutely. I, I wanted to remind people of any age that precarity, that the precariousness of your work life grows as you get older and particularly among men when you lose a long-term secure job in your late 50s or early 60s each successive job lasts a shorter time takes longer to find and pays less and you begin a sort of circling the drain uh, as you scramble to put together the final years of your career, and even somebody with a pretty bulletproof resume and uh, decades of, uh, of high-level work in American journalism uh, can find that the mania for young talent uh, leaves them out in the cold. And I wanted, I wanted people to understand that I knew something about what I was talking about, but I also wanted to get across the idea that precarity grows as you age. When I say it's different for women, uh, they are paid less throughout their careers, but their declines are not as steep and their periods of unemployment are not as long as they get older. So they, they have their own hardships. They have their own challenges, uh, but they are different from those of men. Well, but you talk about men and women, but it, it seemed to me uh, that there was an intentional focus on women. Could you could, could you say more about that? Uh, certainly, with the Intercept Television series, our yes. our third partnership, uh, we were looking for ways to remind people that the social safety net in the United States, such as it is doesn't always protect the people it says it's designed to protect. So we had Katie Prout, who was uh, who is a journalist in Chicago, who was having trouble finding work, went on Medicaid, which exists just for that kind of personal crisis. It exists to help you get health care when you are having trouble earning a living. And her experience illustrated the difference built into Medicare, between, built into Medicaid, between getting help for a problem with your body, bodily injury, uh, bodily health problems, versus your emotional self and your mind. Um, she had clinical depression, and she found it almost impossible to find steady treatment from a psychiatrist who would take Medicaid in payment. And it wasn't like she was in, you know, some remote rural area somewhere. 
She was in Chicago, <laughs> the, the, one of the largest metropolitan areas in the United States, and she struggled to get the kind of mental health treatment she needed when she was on the federal program meant to help you find health care uh, when you have financial troubles. So that was one important story we told. Another was about administrative burden. And we profiled a, um, a social worker from the New York area whose life as the child of immigrants illustrated the way that the bureaucracies of the social, the social safety net are designed to sort of make you run the gauntlet, to make it difficult and challenging for you to get help. And because her parents don't speak English, um, they're a family that uh, immigrated to the New York area from the Dominican Republic. Uh, the, the level of, um, of hoops they had to jump through uh, was becoming daunting. And here she was already struggling during the pandemic to provide childcare and uh, schooling for her children, uh, to um, keep on servicing her clients during the pandemic. And now with the added burden of basically taking on two new clients, her own parents, that these burdens visited themselves on women in particular uh, should be no surprise. And, and Ray, you mentioned a term I'd like for you to just expand on for our listeners. Say more, if you would, about um, the administrative burden and what that what that really is. Well, you know, in some places, um, public officials are actually uh, quietly admitting that it's meant to make it harder to get the benefits that you qualify for in hopes that at some point you may just get so defeated that you'll walk away and not collect the benefits, which makes the programs uh, more able to be solvent. Certainly, that's a pro an approach in the um, in the South, where there is not as thorough, not as well financed a uh, public welfare system that's meant to help you cope with emergency. So the idea is to just make it hard to get emergency housing, emergency health care, unemployment benefits, disability insurance, the various parts of the safety net that you as a citizen, you as a taxpayer, you as a worker are assured are there for you when things go badly. So administrative burden almost comes at, at the individual citizen whispering to them, look, uh, we're going to give you this, but we're not going to make it easy. Uh, whether it's requiring that you somehow prove that you're continuing to look for a job, you're looking for a job because unemployment just doesn't pay very much. But there you are uh, forced to provide people you talk to and places that you called and addresses of places that you wrote and the email addresses of places where you applied online for work. You're looking for work because the $120 a week that you're making from unemployment is impossible to live on and you're having trouble paying your rent, but the state still says, prove it, prove it. We wanna know that you're not, you're not sitting at home on the couch for $28 a day. It's, some of it is, okay, 
I understand why they want to avoid the possibility of fraud, the possibility of lying, the possibility of, um, you know, just using it as a paid vacation. I get it. But there comes a point where the administrative burden crosses a line and almost becomes abusive. And that's uh, an area of scholarship now with, uh, with people who study public administration, looking into the administrative burden across the country and looking at the ways that especially state legislatures, which take almost this 17th century Puritan idea uh, toward public benefits, where they find ways to just make it devilishly hard to protect, devilishly hard to apply for and to maintain the, um, the help that you're supposed to get. You're supposed to get it when you are laid off, when you have an accident on the job, when you uh, have um, a gap in between uh, in between jobs. These programs exist for that. And yet in this almost cruel way, we sometimes make it incredibly hard uh, to do it. You know, I'm sure Byron, you've heard the saying, it's really expensive to be poor. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We apply, we, we provide, for instance, clinic treatment for people who don't have uh, steady health insurance or only have catastrophic health insurance. When you force a woman to take four hours off from work to bring her kid to a clinic, that's money that's coming out of her pocket. That's administrative burden right there illustrated for everyone to see. The waiting room in a public clinic filled with people who really can't afford to spend a half a day getting their kids vaccinations for school, for instance. It's one of the ways that we make being poor really expensive is administrative burden. Uh, uh, I want to continue just on, on, on the, uh, when I hear you talk about administrative burden, I'm, I'm, there, there's a paradoxical element that comes to my mind. And it seems, Ray, that we're more onerous on those on the margin to get the help they need than it is, and these are my words, for those who are already economically stimulated to game the system. For example, certain multinational corporations uh, utilize a business model that places the care of their workers on the backs of American taxpayers. Um, moreover, I don't know of any group of low-income individuals pulling off a welfare scam uh, on par with what's been alleged in Mississippi, which includes NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre, but yet you just talked about this administrative burden is sort of in a way to prohibit that type of onerous behavior that never occurs. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Well, uh, one of the other installments in our Intercept series of Going for Broke involved a low-wage worker, Ishani Gaston, uh, works lives and works in the fast food industry in the South, um, makes a consistently low wage. At the time that we profiled her, she was working two complete full-time jobs and making around $30,000 a year. Imagine that, working 80 hours a week, almost every week of the year, and making $30,000 a year. Ishani 
has a son with special health needs. She is uh, qualified for the Women with Infant Children Feeding Program, WIC. She qualifies for Medicaid because of her consistent low wage, even in the face of all that labor. And we have sort of winked at her employers. Her employers pay her what is understood in the state where she lives to not be a living wage, to not be able to cover all the essentials of life. Yet that is the full-time wage. And her employer can do that knowing that the government, that the taxpayer, that you and me will pick up the slack. We are in effect subsidizing their decision to continue to pay this woman a non-living wage. It was a scandal when one of the biggest corporations in the world and America's largest single employer, Walmart, was doing it across the country. As, in fact, as part of the onboarding process for new employees, counseling them on how to apply for various forms of federal support, basically admitting it right out front that they were going to use the federal government as another um, <laughs> subsidy for their continued low wages. They have since moved away from that structurally and are now paying a higher wage in most places across the country. But it's a scandal. It's a scandal when a boss, who incidentally is making a very healthy living, uh, decides that he's going to use the American taxpayer as a co-payer of his workers' wages. It's amazing that it's allowed to go on. Now, not to put on Walmart, but the three heirs from that fortune are all in America's top 15 uh, wealthiest Americans and still operate this business practice. Well, they did at one time. Uh, ironically, though, Ray, just hearing you uh, talk about this, you know, rhetorically, you know, there's, an op there's a collective opposition to socialism in America, rhetorically. But isn't this public subsidizing of corporations which allows them to pay a depressed wage and having taxpayers subsidize the benefits of formal socialism for the for the for the wealthiest Americans? Oh, yeah, it it socializes, uh, socializes losses and uh, concentrates profits. Uh, it's a for it's a particular kind of socialism. Look, um, Ishani, a hardworking woman who's trying her best to raise her son, uh, would plow herself into the ground, basically, to keep all these balls in the air of obligations and rent and utilities and uh, the cost of getting around. She would work a full day at a fast food chicken sandwich restaurant, eight hours, and then have a couple of hours off and then head to another eight-hour job packing up uh, picture frames for a factory that made picture frames. So she would pack the shipping crates that shipped these objects off to hobby stores, um, home decorating stores across America. Now, when you structure a business like that, there's a couple of ways to get revenue to pay your workers. One is to charge a little bit more for your picture frames so you can pay your workers a little better. They chose not to use that way, in part because they understood that competition per unit is cutthroat. 
that suppliers in Asia will undercut them. I mean, there's there's reasons for this, and there's there's a broader conversation to be had about uh, manufacturing in the United States. But they decided they will pay this young woman a non-living wage and allow the federal government to pick up the slack so that they don't have to raise the cost of the product they're selling. The chicken restaurant had their customers thinking they're getting a deal by paying for the chicken sandwich. But then when they pay their income taxes, they're paying for the benefits that this restaurant chain does not pay the Ishani Gastons of the world. So yeah, it's a quiet socialism that these employers would never cop to. Is some of that, uh, metaphorically speaking, really a a byproduct of the fact that society always prefers to applaud Caesar than demonstrate concern for the Christians that are being fed to the lions? I, um, I have often noted this blind spot in American empathy, and it's been getting more coverage and more discussion in recent years. There is an empathy deficit. We are ready to pile on a low-wage worker like Ishani and blame her for not getting more education so she could get a better job instead of questioning a system that allows her to work for 80 hours a week and still not be able to afford to take care of her monthly obligations. We are all to already, and and some of the responses that I've gotten to the series since it's been out go in exactly that direction. Go to saying, well, hey, you know, she should she should be working harder and getting more skills so she can make more money. Blaming her rather than blaming a structure. I mean, we want chicken sandwiches, and we want them cheap, and we want them fast. And we want picture frames and we want them cheap. And we want stores not to raise the cost of those things. We want what we consider the benefits of this kind of cutthroat work environment. And then when it's illustrated what inequities are built into this system, we blame the worker at the bottom of this pyramid uh, for her own for her own fate, as if she went and got another job and had higher skills, we wouldn't just find another low-skilled young woman uh, to to give this job making chicken sandwiches and pay her a low wage. We want the good things in our life. And I went by we, I mean, the American middle class Mm -hmm. loves the uh, style of life that's afforded to us by all the invisible subsidies in our economy, whether it's the United States Navy protecting uh, oil tankers that help us to have the cheapest gas in the world, or whether it's the system that allows the federal government to pick up the slack when a woman who works 80 hours a week needs WIC, all these various ways. We want our comforts, we want our low cost goods, And we don't really want to hear too much about the consequences of those individual choices. 
And Ray, as I'm hearing you give that answer, I'm thinking about how we began this conversation. So it's almost to get the type of emails you're referring to that someone has to just have a blind spot to you beginning with your story and to show how easy this could happen. And you, we almost have to have sus, su, a suspension of disbelief to not believe that part of the story so I can get to my narrative. She should work harder and get a better job. Yeah. Well, look, I wrote about um, having my career unravel at 60 for the Washington Post. And it was interesting. The article got 4,000 written responses. And they, the range of responses told you something in the aggregate about where Americans are at. There was a big chunk saying, you're telling the story of my life. After 60, it became really hard to make a living. And I had to sell my house. I had to move to a different part of the country. My material life unraveled. Another share said, boy, I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, you're someone that I've watched on TV for many, many years, someone I've listened to on the radio for many, many years. The idea that you can't find a job in this industry is crazy. And then there were hundreds of people who logged on, who went on the Washington Post website to say, what's the matter with you? How come you're in this boat? You must have done something. Uh, I mentioned parenthetically in the article that I had saved hard and lived below my means for a long time so that I could pay, off, pay for my children's educations, for instance. It's a little neurotic about that because I paid for my own college education. Uh, and I know that if I had, if I had not had the burden of working throughout my entire time in school, I would have done better in school. So when my own kids came along, I said to them, I am going to make sure in the way that I run our material life that you don't have to do that, that you can just go to school when you go to school. You can work summers, you, work, you can work breaks, but when you, school is now so expensive that it only makes sense for you to be at school when you're at school and do school. So I paid for everything. And people wrote in, in response to this Washington Post article, what are you nuts paying for your kid's education? That was crazy. You shouldn't have done that. And they imagined a life that I didn't live. They speculated about expensive cars and uh, tuitions at Tony uh, Washington area prep schools like the ones uh, Sasha and Malia and the Bush girls went to. I sent my kids to D.C. public schools for their entire school careers. Um, I said to them when they were little, I said, look, I can send you to private school now, but then I won't have any money to send you to college because it's sort of an ironclad rule that you can only spend the same dollar once. And <laughs> it's gone. And I talked, talked to them when they were very young about the realities of trying to put, put something together like hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings to pay for all their college tuitions. And yet the meanness of these responses um, saying, well, you know, you did this and you did this and you did this, things I didn't do um, to sort of justify the fact that I had now run into hard times 
was really instructive. I think there's a lot of walking wounded out there. There's a lot of disappointed people. There's a lot of unhappy people. And that could become empathy in some of them. But what it became in many of them was nastiness and lack of sympathy and a sort of, um, well, you made your own bed, now lay in it attitude. And it was it was very instructive. Well, you know, Ray, I just got to say, I, I was, I'm was i a little disappointed in you knowing that you spent so much time in public radio as opposed to, say, Fox or MSNBC, that you didn't have a Sidwell Friends slush fund. So, <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on, Ray. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Why weren't my kids at St. Albans? What the hell is right. the matter with me? Yeah. Yeah. What's, yeah, what's wrong with you? Exactly. Exactly. Now, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to this latest series because I because I thought it was really really powerful and and in one in one sense this is sort of my takeaway that while you highlighted the post pandemic impact on so many lives, you also revealed um, we sort of touched on this a little bit but you revealed what I would call a societal indifference in the wake of some sixty year pushback of against what is known as the great society. And you sort of, I think you honor that, whether you intentionally or unintentionally, I, I picked that up as well. Your thoughts? Um, it was intentional. Uh, I just wanted to make it implicit and quiet rather than uh, scrolling across the screen in neon letters. We are pretty hard on each other as a society. And, you know, it, it long predates the Johnson administration. Uh, I think it goes back to the 17th century and Cotton Mather and Increase Mather and the uh, the sort of austere, judgmental Protestantism that came rolling out of the Northeast and, and headed across the country. Uh, we have very little time in the United States for an analysis of systems that create hardship or uh, extend poverty. And instead, place all the responsibility on the individual. Uh, it is a long habit of ours. If somebody is working hard, if somebody is preparing for a, a life and doesn't get it, we say there must be something wrong with that person rather than there must be something wrong with the system that that person is working in. Uh, and it's funny that we are we like to think of ourselves as this ruggedly capitalist country and yet are pretty easygoing about the waste of human capital that's represented by so many disappointed underemployed underutilized people with talents and energy to give that's a form of capital destruction too and we seem not to recognize it. We seem much more to want to wave, wag our finger at those people that they should have done something else rather than what they did. We let our system off the hook. We don't interrogate it enough, looking for faults in it that we might be able to fix. Here's, I'm gonna, the next question I'm gonna probably pose this to you and I'm sure you've gotten an email of this variety in, in some capacity. So, so Ray Suarez, when the pandemic hit, government stepped in to relieve some of the pressure that many Americans were facing. But so what's the problem? Um, did that work? Has, has that fallen short? I'm sure you've gotten something on that, on that thread. Respond to that if you would. 
Well, I think the realities, both the social realities and political realities of the situation required that government do something. Had government just taken a sort of Hoover-esque attitude and said, well, you people work it out on your own. Um, there's this disease that's killing people by the carload. Um, you know, work it out. Let us know what you figure out. We couldn't do that. Whether it was Donald Trump, whether it was Joe Biden, uh, the federal government would have been implicated just by different people at different times. But we put uh, welfare programs into place. We put cushioning programs into place without thinking as carefully about what would need to be addressed when those programs ended. You know, um, rent moratoriums and eviction moratoriums are great, but if conditions are allowed to persist that lengthen the pandemic beyond just the course of a few months, um, economic forces are put into play that create great jeopardy for both renters and owners. You know, landlords have mortgages <laughs> that they have to pay and they pay it out of the rent. And if they're not collecting rent, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a foreclosure moratorium, but the bank's going to want its money at some point, just like a renter knows that the landlord's going to want their money at some point. And you create this trap for everybody involved in this chain of relationships. The government can't figure out when to lift the moratorium. The government also can't pay everybody's rent. The landlord can only hold off the bank for so long or hold off the utility companies for so long as we lived through the first two winters of the pandemic. Yes, we had to do something, but the something wasn't de designed to answer the nature of this social crisis, or it wasn't designed to handle something that went on for this long. This was a long tail problem. People were uh, insecurely working for a long time after people started dying in large numbers. Certainly, I mean, we were a year in before people started to get the vaccine in any numbers. And then people refuse the vaccine, making the problem even longer tail. And boy, forces build up behind those dams. Those are temporary dams. And the water is building up and the water is building up. Uh, students are going to have to start servicing those college loans again. Landlords are going to have to start paying those mortgages again. Renters are going to have to start paying that rent again. Um, people who got free government money to keep their employees on payroll. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of those, a lot of that fund uh, moved like a river through the system in the form of loans rather than grants. So we've taken a society with a great deal of debt overhang already. We were a heavily indebted society before the first American died from COVID-19. And in the intervening two and a half years, we've only become more indebted. It's a dangerous situation and one that it's almost like we've made some compact with each other, where if we don't talk to each other about it, it's going to go away. It's not going to go away. 
It's a really big problem. Well, on that note, Ray, that when you consider the narrative that that, that wasn't just a post-pandemic narrative, but it's one that's been part of our political discourse you talked about that maybe goes back to the 17th century. Um, Do you think uh, politically we've just painted ourselves into a corner where there's sort of this, there's a binary approach, either it's this or this, and the type of bold action to address human dilemma, say post-pandemic, is just not feasible. We just don't have the will. How do you see that? Well, look at the 1930s. Um, America had to be having a nervous breakdown before Franklin Roosevelt could propose the kind of serious medicine that he put into place to relieve the worst effects of economic meltdown. Capitalism was having its nervous breakdown and the system was going to go down the tubes. The only reason he got the limited buy-in that he got from the moneyed classes was because I think they realized that without that kind of serious medicine, the jig would be up and they would lose their stuff along with all the workers and and the people they saw on the street losing their stuff as well. That's how bad it had to get before we could have a serious conversation about the medicine. Now, one of our two governing parties, the main parties of government, one of them is saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe we could just do without Medicare. When healthcare is more expensive every year, goes up at a rate of inflation much higher than the broader rate of inflation in the economy. Medicine and health care gets much more expensive, much faster than anything else you pay for. And yet there's this sort of blithe, well, Medicare is too expensive. So we ought to be telling older Americans to get ready to do without it. Social security is too expensive. It doesn't make any sense. Let people plan for their retirements on their own. College, oh, these college um, debt moratoriums. Well, these people should have known better and they shouldn't have gone into debt. While the people saying that themselves were able to get educated at a more reasonable expense, they're turning around and telling younger people who are 30 years younger, well, what's the matter with you? Why can't you get educated at a modest expense? I did, but college is 20 times more expensive than it was back then. The the inflation rate for tuition went up like 1,400% since the 80s. And you have these sort of blithe prescriptions. We shouldn't be telling people that once they borrow money, um, they could turn around at 35 and say, I can't pay this money anymore and we're going to say it's okay. They're so worried about the morality of this economic problem that they're not worried about the practical social impact of having somebody who can't buy a refrigerator, can't buy a stove, can't get a mortgage to buy a house, can't have a child (laughs) because they're still paying off the college debt they incurred when they were 20 and badly advised and paid too much to go to college. Um, We have 17, 18 and 19 year olds making decisions about big money that they're going to end up um, still wrestling with 15 years later and 20 years later. 
that has a deleterious effect on the whole American economy. So yeah, I get it. You borrowed money, you paid it off, you get a gold star, that's great. And I understand why you think there's moral hazard involved in saying to young adults who borrowed too much money, uh, we're gonna help you pay off some of that money, I get it. But when you think about the broader implications of what having millions of people over a trillion dollars in debt at the time in their lives when they should be starting to establish their material adult lives. Um, if you want to just act like that's not a problem, uh, I can't get behind that. I can't pretend that that's not a problem. It's a problem. How we address it might differ from person to person and where we'll put the emphasis and how we'll structure the uh, the uh, medicine that we provide for this really serious problem may differ from person to person, but you can't just wave your hand, especially if you went to a heavily subsidized public college back when the legislature still thought it was worthwhile to support the colleges in the state and now say, well, they should have known better because it's just not an observation that fits the reality of the situation. And you can see that in issue after issue after issue. It's like we are children in the way that we talk about these things. I, I recall several years ago, there was the uh, Fight for 15 campaign, which is $15 an hour. Um, now, short of having two journalists discussing macroeconomics, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, it seems to me that that an actual number like $15 per hour, though it could work in certain low-wage cities, certainly would not be plausible in high-wage cities like San Francisco, which I think is a $16.99 right now in Boston, New York. So in your work with this series, have you encountered any innovative thoughts to address this dilemma, or are we just permanently on that trail where someone who's working at Starbucks in San Francisco has a 90-minute commute each way that takes a big bite out of their $16 uh, uh, an hour uh, paycheck, which is already unlikely and which is probably not sustainable. I think you're right that econ prevailing economic conditions in different places in the country mean what a living wage is differs from place to place. Uh, so Huntsville, Alabama is a cheaper place to live than Boston. Granted, but $7.25 an hour isn't enough to live on anywhere. Fort Smith, Arkansas, um, Olathe, Kansas, Rockford, Illinois, it doesn't matter. $7.25 an hour is not enough to live on. If you're a full-time worker and you're working some 50 weeks a year, that's $15,000. That's not enough to live on. Certainly after these last two years of inflation, uh, the idea that you can live some sort of coherent material life for $15,000 a year just doesn't make any sense. Even if you forego owning a car, which is one of the most expensive things that young workers can do is own a car, but they end up getting these low-wage jobs in places in America that don't provide public transportation, so make it very hard for them to get around. Um, 7.25 an hour just doesn't do it. And yes, I understand why 
state legislatures in Mississippi and Arkansas and Alabama rage about the federal minimum wage. Well, how little do you want to pay? You want to pay $5 an hour in the Hot Springs, Arkansas? Is anybody going to come to work for that amount of money? Um, yes, there's a there's a a macroeconomic debate to be had about the minimum wage, but there's also a, a sort of humane case to be made for building the floor under low wage workers' feet, where things finally come to rest in different places in the country, uh, can be something that we can talk about and debate about and check local conditions. Um, what does rent cost? What does a gallon of gas cost? What do local taxes cost? Granted. But the idea that you're going to try to be an adult working full-time for $15,000 a year doesn't really make any sense. And, and with most matters involving public policy, the impact is not linear. Um, any thoughts on how your investigative work impacts life expectancy. And, and, and what made me think about this is that we just had a recent CDC report where there's been like a two and a half year drop on life expectancy since the pandemic began. So any thoughts about that? You know, the conditions created by the pandemic, more people spending more time at home. A lot of those people who were sent home from jobs where they were around others, they spent that time at home by themselves. Suicide went up. Deaths of despair went up. The use of illicit drugs went up. The resorting to alcohol and dying of alcohol abuse and alcohol-related diseases went up. Firearms-related deaths went up. So Americans were dying more frequently from deaths of despair, which cut cumulatively uh, hundreds of thousands of actuarially expected years of life, especially among men. You know, it's it's men's life expectancy and the drop in that that's powering the overall drop in American life expectancy. And a lot of men in a lot of places expected better from their 40s and 50s. And they are ending their lives either slowly or all at once um, as much as 20 years earlier than their expected lifespan might be. It is something that is happening at a scale that I think Americans don't fully comprehend and appreciate. But when we started to hit new highs, for instance, in drug overdose deaths, that was one part of that. But also suicide increased, but also uh, untreated clinical depression increased. Uh, we were sort of moving along, high rate of employment, very low rate of unemployment. A lot of people had a lot of overtime. So that helps paper over the problems in a lot of individuals' lives. They cope. They cope from month to month because they're running so hard that they don't stop for a second and see on how unhappy they are. But the pandemic forced a lot of idleness forced a lot of loneliness and forced a lot of despair that led people to do things that shortened their lives in terrible, terrible ways. And, um, you know, the, the number of guns being sold uh, went through the roof um, year on year on year, new records in the purchase of firearms, 
And a lot of those firearms were used in suicides. You, you used the word despair in that last answer. Uh, but your story, um, the reporting you did is not one totally of despair because I'm, I'm thinking of people who sort of realized um, their raison d'etre, if you will. I'm thinking specifically about Ashani Gaston, in addition to working those incredibly long hours, she's also committed her life to changing some of these things. Talk about her in that, in that work, if you would. She, uh, as you mentioned, the fight for 15, uh, she's part of a national movement of low-wage workers, heavily concentrated in the fast food industry, who are fighting for better wages around the country and finds purpose and solidarity and camaraderie. You know, it can be lonely working 80 hours a week, uh, but she finds purpose in her role in that movement to fight for unionization in these restaurants and higher wages in these restaurants. So she's not, she's not just sitting back and, and taking whatever comes her way. She is pushing back. Uh, she is um, asserting the dignity of low-wage workers and saying, yeah, we, we don't earn a great living, but there's no reason why we can't be paid adequately. Um, and, you know, I, I admire her willingness to fight a great deal. Unionization, certainly in right-to-work states across the country, going to be a tough battle in these uh, low-wage industries. But uh, she says she's in it for the long haul. We'll see. Go Ishani. Uh, but the, the, all three stories, um, Lisa Ventura, uh, Katie Prout, Ishani Gaston, the others that we told in the radio series, uh, they are stories not of despair, not of giving in uh, to these structural challenges, but of resilience and resistance. And they are wonderful people to meet, and they are making the best of really daunting situations. Uh, I want to close by, by having you, Ray, uh, talk about the value for you in doing this project that sort of transcended the actual reporting, if you would. I have always wanted to encourage Americans to have a more realistic conversation about the world of work, about getting and having and what's enough, the difference between needs and desires. We're very bad at it as a people. So this reporting was right up my alley because I think it forces the reader, the listener, the viewer to consider what it takes to build in a sort of um, minimum requirement for human dignity in workers and for us to talk to each other about what a full-time job should bring a worker. So um, it was great for me uh, to do work that I love. And one of the downsides of, uh, of being a gig worker in your 60s is that you just never know what's going to come down the pike. But one of the great gifts of being a gig worker in your 60s is that when The Intercept or Wisconsin Public Radio or The Nation approaches you with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and says, hey, we'd like you to do this. Are you interested? You get to um, have these unexpected gifts of really interesting stories, um, 
illustrating the challenges in really interesting lives to a wider audience that may not be aware of what people are going through or maybe going through a lot and just not aware that they're not alone when it comes to that struggle. So it was a great privilege for me uh, to get these assignments, to be asked to be a partner on these projects, and I've enjoyed them immensely. And how, for those who are listening who have not seen um, this latest in the insecurity, how how can they um, view it? Tell us how we can view it. Well, you can go to the Intercept website. Just uh, put in your search bar "The Intercept," and it'll come up. It's um, a series called Insecurity, so you can watch that on television. You can go to Wisconsin Public Radio and look for "To the Best of Our Knowledge," or just search "To the Best of Our Knowledge" and look for "Going for Broke." And you can go to the site of the magazine, The Nation, and again, search for Going for Broke. And there you'll have the, um, the three legs of that stool, uh, of that project, to hear the different stories that we've told over these past two years about making it and not making it in America. Ray Suarez. I want to thank you so much for once again joining us on The Public Rally. And thank you in particular for this what I consider very valuable journalistic projects, sir. Byron, it's always a pleasure. Um, ask anytime, I'll be happy to join you. Thanks a lot. Happy New Year, everybody. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>